The Colorado Equals Security Podcast is your local source for regional security news, local events, and interviews with key individuals in the region. Now, here are your hosts, Rob Reck and Alex Wood. Welcome to Colorado Equals Security. This is the newscast for episode 79, the week of August 13th. Alex, happy Sunday. Happy Sunday, Rob. You made it back from Vegas. I have a little bit of a post-con uh, cough sickness going on. The, the con flu, I think is what they call it. I don't know. I, I felt great when I was out there and get home and not so great. Yeah, that's the way it goes, you know. It's a but giant cesspool out there. I am super excited to record this podcast, though. Oh, yeah? Yeah. We got some, some exciting stuff. We got a lot of good news. We have a great feature interview this week. But first, there's some housekeeping. There is. Uh, we have a Slack channel, in case you haven't heard. Great discussion going on on the Slack channel. You should make sure to come and join. Actually, you shouldn't join. There's too many people there now. We don't need you. That's we're, right. We're yeah. well over 500 people at this point. Uh, we also have a mailing list. So if you want to get the show notes uh, delivered to your email box every week, sign up to that. Uh, you can rate us out on uh, iTunes. Uh, let us know if you like it. We'd love it if you give us a five star. If you have any comments, let us know those as well. Uh, and we do also have a Patreon. This is an opportunity for you to help us support the show, help pay the costs of those crazy things that we have to do here to keep the stuff running. Um, we, we do have our commitment to you that none of this goes into our pockets. It goes right back out to the show and to the community. Uh, speaking of Patreons, we mentioned last week we had a new sponsor, John Hubbard, and John wanted to give a shout out to his employer, Survey Gizmo. They are the, the ones who are actually paying for this Patreon. Yeah, so Survey Gizmo based here seems like they are survey monkey-ish. Yeah, good stuff. Yep. Um, thanks a lot to, to them for their support. We appreciate it. And if you need a survey tool, take a look at Survey Gizmo. First story we have, uh, Colorado is the second highest uh, state for identity theft in the country. So this is interesting. There's a few different ways that they looked at this, uh, you know, per capita, how many people get impacted, uh, how much are you impacted when you are. But anyway, they kind of average it all together and said, you know, number Colorado is number two in terms of the, the most impacted by identity theft. Uh, in Colorado, victims lost an average of $4,480 when they, when they were impacted by this. Uh, there are other worst states, uh, Maryland, California, and New York. Uh, but also, if you don't want to have your identity stolen, you should live in South Dakota, Indiana, Maine, or Rhode Island. So, so the, the very worst was Nevada. They were up at 5,900 per person impacted. Colorado was second. And then, like you said, Maryland, California, and New York. Um, so yeah, we have, uh, some, some bad places to, to live from an identity state, uh, theft perspective. And apparently maybe people want to steal our identity cause they want to live here. Could is be. That, is that what's going on here? Could be. Uh, it doesn't make sense if Nevada is number one though. That's right. No one wants to live there. Uh, next on the list, uh, Denver is a bigger boom town than Seattle or Dallas. So this is a uh, you know, kind of similar to other lists we've seen. They take a bunch of factors together and say which state comes out at the top. For this, it's population and housing, so the total population and number of housing units, the uh, workforce and earnings, the uh, they look business at growth, business growth, yep, and then paid employees per day period and total receipts for non-employers. So a bunch of different financial uh, measures, right? And of course, the number one boomtown yeah. is our arch nemesis. Austin, Texas. Yeah. The rest of the list is a little bit less uh, forecastable, right? Austin is number one, but number two is Provo, uh, Utah, Raleigh, North Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, Nashville, Tennessee, and then Denver. Yeah, I know that there is a lot of stuff going on in Nashville, too, so that one's not super surprising. Uh, we, we did beat both Seattle and Dallas on the list, so Urgh, take that. Yeah. We're better. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Denver being awesome, we have another story here about downtown becoming Denver's new tech hub. So this actually really surprised me. Um, not that downtown was the tech hub that, that I've seen, you know, we've seen happening over the last decade, but the way that they divide it, they're basically saying that Lodo uh, is not downtown. Lodo right. is, is a different section and Lodo is becoming less the tech hub. And it's the kind of the traditional part of downtown where the, where the big high rises that were built back in the seventies are. Yeah, you know, for a while you had tech companies and other startups that would be in the, the old lofts, you know, small offices there. And now it seems that folks are moving back towards those those taller buildings, getting spaces in those areas. Yeah, when I, when I first read it, I was thinking they meant, oh, people are, you know, not in the tech center or they're not in Boulder, but they really meant they're not in those other peripheral downtown areas as well. So they give some examples. 
um, of companies that moved down there. I'd say that the most interesting thing out of here to me was that they say that the analysis says that our tech talent here in Denver is at about 100,000 people, 100, people, which is about 6.2% of the total workforce. Um, and that's up over 23% from 2012. So big growth in tech here in town. Yeah, definitely. Next, uh, Amazon could release another uh, list of their uh, potential HQ2 cities here shortly. So this is narrowing down that initial list, the initial short list that they had. Um, I don't know. It's probably it's been a few months six, now, six, eight months ago. Yeah. Uh, so the, the interesting thing out of here to me wasn't so much that they're going to maybe have another yeah. list. It's, it's this comment that came in the middle of the article uh, about Jeff Bezos. Apparently one of the insiders who had been working on this project um, said that Bezos is incentive obsessed and that his whole team is charged with getting the largest pound of flesh possible out of every jurisdiction they're in. It's about money and about the spreadsheet, uh, but it's about it's also about wanting about being wanted. And this gesture he expects from the governments where he's blessing with the high wage jobs. Yeah, you know, uh, I don't know if that is a little bit cynical by the person who uh, was in the place that did not get to the short list. Yeah. Um, but I could also see where, hey. I, we've got all this power and we want to go somewhere. Let's get the, use the most of our power to, to get all these incentives. Yeah. The, I mean, this whole process is, is I'm definitely become a lot more uh, down about the whole possibility of them coming here and what's the impact going to look like and how long would it take us to figure out how to do it the right way? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure it'd be a, a great thing for us if they did come to Denver. It reminds me of an episode on Silicon Valley last year where uh, Gavin Belson, the, the fake CEO of their fake Google company, essentially bankrupted an entire town because they wanted to bring a uh, a production facility there and they, they made them give all these concessions and essentially yeah. wiped out the entire town and then and then decided that they, they didn't want to do the manufacturing and left. Oh, So anyway, yeah. fun stuff. Hopefully we don't see that. Hopefully we don't yeah. see that. Uh, next, uh, Crocs uh, reported they are closing their manufacturing facilities and their CFO is resigning. This is not quite as right. bad as it sounds on the surface yeah. with that headline, I, but it's still that, not good. Well, well, the first thing you hear when you hear this is it sounds to me as an outsider that like they're going out of business, but that's certainly not what's happening. Most shoe companies um, don't do their own manufacturing and, and Crocs had been one that was doing their own and, and now they're not, right? They're just outsourcing right. and have, having external manufacturers do the manufacturing for them. So as I've learned a little bit more about this and reading and understanding, really the CFO leaving is probably the bigger piece of news here than the manufacturing going away. Yeah. Uh, they also did note in there that they've been closing a number of, number of their company-owned stores as well, which I also think is more concerning than uh, yeah. the fact that they're not doing their own manufacturing. So last March, they said that they were going to go, they were going to close 160 of the 558 retail stores they had. They were going to do that by the end of this year. Um, so it looks like right now they're about 400. So they're, they are on track for what they said they were going to do. Um, that I guess maybe some good news the the CFO who's leaving, um, Carrie Tufner, uh, she's not resigning until April 1st. So not, not for another six months or so. Um, she's going to be replaced by Ann Melman, who's coming from Zappos where she was the CFO. Uh, and apparently before Zappos, she was, wor she already worked at Crocs. Yeah, so that is a, a positive sign. Um, Zappos do, seems to do very well, so hopefully they can uh, help things for Crocs. Yep. Uh, moving over to security news here in town, Red Canary and Endgame have announced a partnership. So Red Canary is the local managed EDR company here in town. And previous to this, they supported Carbon Black. Last year, they brought on CrowdStrike, and now they brought on a third EDR solution. So they, they build their telemetry and their whole... Um, operational model on top of this underlying technology and you know endgame gives them some new functionality yeah i think it's pretty cool their whole model is they just need the data they don't really care how they get the data and you know as they bring on these other partners to be able to to get that endpoint data it, it makes them a more powerful solution and uh, i think it's good stuff yeah uh next uh there's a new cybersecurity startup that just hired a chief executive uh password ping uh, which is a Boulder-based uh, startup that they screen online accounts for compromised credentials, hired Michael Green as CEO. So he was previously CEO at a company called ID Watchdog, um, which was sold to Equifax. I believe that's their identity yeah. theft protection service now. Sure. And and, and so they, uh, they moved their previous CEO, Michael Wilson, um, over to being the CTO. So, you know, scaling up and bringing in a more experienced leader makes sense. And 
uh, kind of what you expect to see as a company starts to grow. Uh, it's interesting to see that there is a enough of a market in compromised credentials that you can have an entire startup based just on that. Well, you'd ex- I would expect that they're you know intending to get bought up by somebody to bundle that into their product. Could be. Um, Conversant has a series of blog posts, four different blog posts that are all about lessons learned from GDPR. So I'm not planning to go through all these right here on the podcast, but I do think if you are someone who who kind of wants to figure out what has GDPR actually done now that it's in place and and how do I need to be thinking about it? I was waiting to see it in place, but now this is a good time to take a look at what they did and, and read it from a compliance perspective. They talk, you know, they're mostly focused on... Um, kind of a risk from a, or an employee type of a perspective, but it really ties in closely with what we do in security and IT. Yeah, there were some uh, good articles there. Uh, IntelliSecure also had a blog on the proper, proper role of cyber insurance in enterprise risk management. Um, I'll give a really quick summary for you here. Uh, you should do security controls and cyber in- insurance, yeah. not security controls or cyber insurance. Yeah. And I think that the gist of it was there, they pulled out a stat from the AT&T's 2017 global state of cybersecurity survey where 20, 28% of respondents saw cyber insurance as a replacement for defenses. Right. Yeah. So you don't want to do that. <laughs> you don't want to, um, but if there's you know, one single person listening, who's right. like, really, I, I shouldn't stop right. doing security because I got insurance. I'm glad you heard this now. You should still try and protect yourself and have insurance for the instances where you can't. Right. Fair enough. Uh, all right. So next, we have a blog post from Coalfire, which is really just them looking, doing some analysis of a recent Gartner report. It's the hype cycle for risk management in 2018. And it's, it's a pretty interesting uh, chart here. I think you, you might want to click on this link and look at what, what they're looking at. Basically, they show which different technologies are in what stage of their of their hype cycle you know coming up you know people are starting to hear about them they're at that peak of inflated expectations down into the trough of disillusionment uh the slope of enlightenment and then the the plateau of productivity Uh, other than the cheesy marketing parts that gartner does with this i think that the hype cycle is actually one of the more useful things that they do um if you sort of look historically at these and they have them for different market segments you can see uh, where you know, remember like two years ago, you know, such and such technology, you know, artificial intelligence or whatever it is, you, you could have seen it at the top of that hype cycle. And then, you know, several years uh, later on, you can see where, oh, hey, look, it's actually gotten to a place where it's actually useful now. It's not just people saying, oh, it's going to solve all our problems. Well, I will point out that blockchain for data security is in the innovation trigger. Apparently that means that people are get really getting really excited about it and yep. working on it right now. Um, and SIM is is not in the trough of disillusionment, which is what, what I might have guessed. They are in the slope of enlightenment. Huh. So they've gone through disillusionment and now they're coming out now the other end. they're figuring out how to get better. So that's right. awesome. That is good. Good stuff. Um, next, Optive had a blog um, about some new services that they, they announced, basically um, using some of their services to help companies see how they are seen by uh, attackers. That's kind of a good idea, right? You, yeah. You, you want to think about how you're, how the bad guys are targeting you and, and what what they might be trying to do. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting spin on things. For sure. And then our final story this week is, a, is another blog post by ThreadX. And this is using Android proxy browsers, convenience without web application security. Alex, what's this all about? So uh, basically there's a lot of older Android devices out there there are a number of applications that are out there that do proxies to help you uh, do things faster, essentially that, that uh, the capacity will be taken up on the proxy side as opposed to on your your old phone that can't do that anymore. Uh, the bottom line is that you need to be careful because you don't know what these proxy services are really doing. You may be sacrificing some of your privacy and security for yeah. speed. And they're probably selling your, your data to the bad guys. Right. Or, or good or, guys. Or just you know using it outright. They're right. Maybe they're not even selling it. Awesome. Well, that's it for news. Jumping over to the Slack message of the week. First, thanks so much to Andre Gata, who sponsors this for us every week. Andre, we, we do appreciate your ongoing support for this. Um, Slack message of the week this week is going to go to Colin Grady. Colin, we uh, we just want to give you a shout out. Now, this week, specifically, we're going to recognize your post about the DENSEC meeting next Wednesday. Um, but really, I just want to acknowledge you know the work you do to keep that group going all on your own. And uh, we, we certainly appreciate that opportunity for folks to socialize and, and the work you do and keeping it going. And you can congratulate him as well. 
this week at the Densec meeting. So go show up and have a beer and socialize with other security people. At the Wine Coop on Wednesday. Exactly. Yeah. Speaking of things happening. What? We have an event calendar on our website, colorado-security.com. You can go out there and you can see a list of all of the things going on through the end of the year. Uh, I would also like to mention that we have entered into a little bit of a sponsorship. So this is not something that we have done previously before, um, but we are a, a sponsor of the Ballard Spar Colorado Cybersecurity Summit. Yeah, we had, we had Ballard Spar on the podcast a while back, and we've appreciated what they're doing around security. And they reached out to us to get us involved with their summit. And we said, yeah, let's do it. Let's see if we can help it out. Yeah, so we're going to help uh, promote that. And we think you guys should all come out and hang out at the summit. When is that, Alex? So the <laughs> that summit is on the, I believe, the 18th um, of September. So that it's a morning event, half-day event at the Ballard Spar offices. And we'll have more information about what the tracks look like as we as we get more information. Exactly. All uh, right. Do you want to go ahead and jump into next events? First event, uh, SecureSet is doing their career conversations with Ruben Booker on the 14th. On the 14th and 15th, ISSA Denver has their August chapter meetings. As a reminder, Wednesday, the or excuse me, Tuesday, the, the 14th, it'll be up in Boulder at lunchtime, and, and it'll be downtown Denver for the evening meeting, and then Wednesday lunch will be in the DTC. And as previously mentioned, DENSEC is doing their monthly meetup on the 15th at Wincoop. Also on the 15th, the Colorado Techn- Technology Association is doing their general assembly at Rhino Industry. Industry Station, uh, the 15th. Yeah. Uh, Secure Set on the 16th is doing an expert series with Cody Cornell, CEO of Swimlane. On the 21st, ISSA Denver has their Women in Security Group meeting. This is going to be yet another chance to get together with a lot of women in the area and, and really help each other network and get better. On the 22nd, ISSA Colorado Springs is having one of their big events the Cybersecurity Training and Technology Forums that's down there in the Springs. Yeah, so this is the big conference of the year in Colorado Springs. You know, like our Rocky Mountain Information Security Conference is in Denver. This is to the Springs. And hopefully if you're down there or you're just looking for a good full day's training, you might want to drive down there and go through this for, uh, for you know next week. For sure. Uh, SecureSet is doing another career conversations with Scott Bowman uh, and Alex Reed on the uh, 22nd of August. Yeah, and I believe that uh, Scott is with SecureSet, and Alex is a former He's a graduate. Uh, student. Yeah, um, and then on the twenty third, uh, ISSA Denver is doing one of their monthly happy hours. All right, let's go ahead and jump over to jobs. Uh, we have uh, some interesting jobs this week. Not a lot of the normal, you know, security analyst stuff. Starting off, we do have a, for a position at Teletech that's focused on cybersecurity principal engineer and GRC span uh, specialist. Nice. Uh, FINRA is looking for an examiner in their member regulation sales practice. Yeah, this is interesting to me. It, 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 as I was looking through it, this is really going out and, do, and running examinations um, of financial organizations. So if you've worked in financial services and you want to you know, kind of help make things better, this might be a good opportunity for you. Uh, Coal Fire is hiring a penetration tester consultant. CBiz is looking for a risk and advisory services senior IT audit associate. So, so I didn't know who CBiz was. I don't know if that's CoBiz or, or what. I looked it up and it's a, they deliver top level financial and benefits and insurance services to organizations of all sizes. Wow. Yeah. There that, you go. You don't want to deliver bottom level, so that's good. Well, that that is better, yeah. Uh, Proofpoint is hiring a web security solutions architect focused on the West. Webroot is looking for a field marketing program manager. ThreadX is hiring an account manager. If you want to go sell ThreadX, there's your chance. Uh, Carbon Black is looking for a competitive research analysis. It sounds like a fun job. That does sound like a fun job. Go learn about all the other competitors and, and how they all stack up. And I assume figure out how Carbon Black is better than all of them and write that down in a, in a persuasive way, right? Exactly. Uh, and then finally, Water for People, which is a nonprofit focused on getting water to people, uh, is looking for a director of technology. I like when I have water. So it's good when you get yeah. water to people. Uh, it especially sucks for people who don't have water. Yes. Yeah. A lot. So this this could be a good thing. So that's it for the news this week. Uh, we do have a feature interview with Dave McGuire, who's actually taken your place over at QEP Resources. Yeah. He has some pretty choice things to say about what you left him, Alex. Ooh, you know what? I think I'll have to listen to the episode. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it. We'll uh, talk to you guys next week. Thanks, Rob. Hi, this is Chad Payne, Executive Director of IT Operations for Cracky Sports and Entertainment. Welcome to Colorado Equals Security. 
for Colorado security professionals by Colorado Security Professionals. This is the Colorado Equal Security Feature Interview. When you think of Denver, if you, especially if you think 15, 20 years ago and you talk about what are the big industries in Denver, the, the number one industry um, has always been oil and gas, right? Um, we, I'd say over the last 20 years, we've we had tele, telecommunications has come up and been real high along with it, but oil and gas. And, and frankly, somehow we haven't had an oil and gas security leader on this show yet. And I'm really excited to today to introduce David McGuire, who runs security over at QEP Resources. Um, David, before I start to talk about running security there at QEP and how you got to, to a place where you're doing that, I first want to ask uh, about one of your other passions. And it sounds like, you know, more than gosh, more than 30 years worth of uh, experience now in, in martial arts. So talk to us about the martial art that you study and, and, and a little more detail about that. Sure, sure. So, <clears throat> yeah, I started um, a, a style of Southern Chinese Kung Fu on the East Coast in Virginia when I was 14 years old, hmm. um, back in 1982. So what's it called? Uh, Shui Long Pai is the name of the system. Shui Long Pai. It is a, uh, a small family-based system. It's an eclectic blend, um, primarily founded in one of the original five Chinese styles uh, called Li Ka, mm. or Li Family. And so, uh, being Southern uh, Chinese, its um, hallmarks are shorter movements, closer stances, not a lot of high, sweeping, wide-ranging kicks. Um, those were hallmarks of Northern Kung Fu mm. in China, um, which was all just a, a source of geography. Um, congested cities in the South, tighter, close-in movements, Wide open fields in the north, long hmm. wide open kicks and movements. So is it most? It's mostly striking, from what I hear you saying. It's Kicking a, and punching. It, it's a traditional striking art. It's not a grappling art. Yeah. Um, a lot of it, it has uh, what we call in, in Chinese chinna moves, which are grappling moves or joint locks, hmm. um, but not to the point of current MMA. Um, you know, choke them out, right. take them to the mat, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, it was definitely much more striking art. Yeah. Um, uh, more traditional. Mostly kicking. Uh, no, mo mostly hand movements with kicking. So always in combination. And hmm. so the, the thing people don't uh, recognize about martial arts when they put their kids into a karate school or something, um, real martial arts was about real fighting, not yeah. tournaments, not you know getting physically fit, not improving your um, self-esteem, but about trying to defend yourself for real. Right. And so the system I studied was definitely a traditional, it's you know street-worthy um, uh, combat uh, readiness or training. So, um, but what most people don't realize about martial arts is the martial arts were designed to give a smaller, weaker person an advantage over a larger, stronger person in a fight. Hmm. And when you approach it that way, the material has to come together and work together. So it's not do you kick or do you strike, it's um, how do you set them up, probably with your hands, so that that kick really does damage. Mm. <laughs> um, you, you never want it to be just the pace away. You want to set a base and actually make them absorb the impact. Mm. <laughs> That's interesting. You, know, uh, you, you talked about, I think you said street worthy, it might have been mm -hmm. the phrase you used. Yep. Um, my family has been doing Taekwondo for the last few years and it does not seem in any way street worthy <laughs> to me. I'm relatively confident that those black belts in there aren't actually learning how to fight, right? They're learning the other things you talked about, fitness and self, self-control and discipline, and there's all kinds of fantastic advantages, yeah. advantages to doing it, but it doesn't feel to me like self-defense is very high on that list of um, goals. True, most of the underbelts, and you know, in the old world, they didn't even have underbelts. Um, you were given a white belt when you did enough work that it was black, you were deemed an instructor. <laughs> But, you know, in the modern world, everyone needs a short-term goal. So, yeah. you know, in the United States, we introduced color belt ranks, hmm. uh, both Kung Fu, Karate, for so Japanese, So that doesn't exist it, back in China, the, the belting um, it, it does today in the modern okay. world. It didn't originally. There okay, was no it. such concept. Um, again, it was just passing along yeah. the family style so that you could defend yourself for real. Yeah. And so um, Taekwondo is primarily a kicking art. Mm -hmm. Um, if you go to mainland China today, the official sanctioned martial art is called Wushu. Wushu is not a combat art. Um, China watered that down. They had multiple rebellions, you know, hundreds and thousands of years ago by martial artists yeah. who knew how to really fight the emperor's troops. So um, the modern communist regime's like, no, no, um, we don't need everyone being that capable. So Wushu is much more gymnastics, hmm. much more performance. So tournament performance. Yeah. 
And you know, even in uh, the United States today, when you go to martial arts tournaments, it's called point fighting. And you're not allowed to actually strike the other person. You come within an inch or so and you get your point. If you actually hit them, you get penalized because hmm. we don't want any injuries. There should be no contact. We've got insurance liability. <laughs> which which uh, martial art is that that has no striking? Well, in tournament fighting, th there's no actual impact allowed because of liability. For, but which, for, for which martial art tournament all, all, uh, all martial art tournaments today. <laughs> so the karate kid was wrong? They're not actually kicking each other? Um, not anymore. They okay. used to. All right. You know, back in the 80s and 90s when I was a student, um, you went to a tournament, you're going to get your clock cleaned in, mm. in, in a sparring tournament. You're going to get hit, and you're going to get hit hard unless yeah. you were able to defend yourself. Um, today, but primarily because of insurance liability, they don't want impact. If there's any impact, um, it's a bad thing. Hmm. Um, they'll allow some impact at, at black belt levels, but underneath that, no, it's a bad thing today. So, so what belts are you? So, does, does it um, work that way with degrees of black? So, uh, for the comparison, um, most karate systems, um, uh, Japanese karate, have ten dans of black. My system, family style of kung fu, has five levels compared okay. to ten, and I'm a third degree black. Okay. Um, my instructor's a fourth degree, his instructor's a fifth degree. Yeah. And under my instructor, uh, he's been teaching since 76, I'm the only one who ever made it to third level. So are you basically like tapped out, you can't go any higher because your instructor is only a four? No, I, if he decided that I should go to four, yeah. he would bring in his instructor who gotcha. um, uh, would promote me to the next level. Um, generally speaking, that's how someone in the upper black levels gets promoted to their next level. If you have enough experience to bring someone up to where you're at, you get the next step. Gotcha. So generally, um, my instructor would get his fifth if I were to go to fourth. Gotcha. Well, that's very interesting and probably uh, time for us to move on to Absolutely. something a little more security focused. Oh, of course. Uh, thanks for the background. So I, I do want to hear how you got into security, how you became the the head of security for uh, one of the larger oil and gas companies here in town. Sure. But first, back me up, um, back to you know when you're coming right out of school. We talked. We were talking offline about how you became the the computer guy in your family. Mm -hmm. How how is that? Why, how did you, out of the the six of your siblings, become the one who is going to be the computer one? So uh, a function of timing, right? Um, I'm the youngest of six children, and I graduated in high school in 1985. So um, in the early 80s, when I was in school, um, we finally had uh, TRS-80 uh, machines. Uh, the Commodore 64 was out for home. Um, we actually had computers we could lay our hands on when I was still in school. Yeah. Um, none of my brothers and sisters had that advantage. Um, you know, there was no such things. They had a typewriter at home. <laughs> so um, by virtue of timing, um, in the early 80s, uh, you know, I got introduced to computers while I was in school, decided to go into IT. Uh, back then, uh, data processing, then MIS, um, today IT, yeah. and so I became the computer guy. Um, uh, when I left uh, high school in 85, I started working for Coca-Cola Consolidated. At the time, Coke had one of the first IBM PCs, mm. and it was a dual floppy IBM PC, and then they got in the next generation IBM PC XT that had a 10 megabyte hard drive <laughs> instead yeah. of just five and a quarter floppies. Yeah. So professionally from there forward, um, you know, I worked in IT at Coke um, for the but, next five why, years. Why were you able to get the IT job if you, I mean, oh, there's sure. no training, um, right? Yeah, so in, in high school I actually went to, um, my junior and senior year, I went to a vocational school for mm -hmm. the data processing program. And so uh, we worked on uh, TRS-80s, uh, North Star That's microsystems. Nice. Yeah. And so I had a little bit more um, uh, computer savvy than most coming out of sure. high school in 85. And they actually helped place me um, coming out of that vocational That's awesome. school. So That's a neat program. Half of my day in high school um, was, was the vocational school. Yeah, okay. So you, you worked at Coke as IT desktop support? So, admin. Uh, I guess there was no desktop support because they didn't all have Yeah, titles were very different back then. Yeah. So I think my first title was PC clerk, yeah. <laughs> um, eventually computer operator. Well, what did that mean you did? What, what was your day-to-day? -day? So my day-to-day -day was um, a bit of data entry on, on the PCs. They yeah. had a data entry department. Um, I wasn't in data entry, but on the PCs, we had small emerging programs, and they had one individual that was, uh, I think his title was PC programmer, and I technically worked for him, and so I was basically his gopher. Um, anything he needed, I did. 
And so at the time, Coca-Cola Consolidated was doing uh, something they called the Keystone Survey Program. So they were trying to do market research you know, across their retail footprint, and it all came back on paper. I typed it into a PC-based database. Mm. Um, I, did, I created forms in WordPerfect. Yeah. Um, I worked in you know version two of Lotus one two three. Yeah. Um, uh, those those were my day to day functions until I got into computer operations on the IBM System thirty six. Yeah. Okay. So you were at Coke for, for how long were you there? I was at Coke for five years. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly, um, I mean, I was the the PC clerk maybe for a year. Um, went into computer operations on the IBM System thirty six. We kind of had a large region. We had fourteen uh, branch locations. Uh, across Virginia, West Virginia, that, that reported to our divisional office. Um, and then Coke made one of those uh, great corporate maneuvers called centralization. Um, they decided to centralize all the regional computer ops uh, departments back to the headquarters in Charlotte. And I, at that point, became a field support um, specialist, hmm. eventually field support um, uh, supervisor and manager managing all of the satellite communications, the route sales equipment, um, handhelds were a NORAD system. Um, back at the time, uh, route sales guys had a handheld computer terminal and printer in their truck. Hmm. So they would go to you know, uh, Acme convenience store, drop off X cases, print out the invoice, all that right there in their truck. And that's how we were doing automation at Coke in the mid to late 80s. That's pretty cool. So it was fun, it was a good time in so, technology back then. Very important question. If you had walked in with a Pepsi can, mm-hmm. what, what would what would have happened? Um, you know, back then it was a little less politically correct. Um, there actually was a person who showed up at an extracurricular ball game wearing Pepsi who was fired. They fired the person for they wearing Pepsi. Fired him for wearing it at a public forum hmm. because it was the exact uh, competition, yeah. and he was a representative of Coca Cola. Interesting. So it, back then they could do that. <laughs> Yeah, so, so not a lot of love lost there, huh? No. The nice thing about Coke was, um, you know, we, I think if I remember correctly, we had a nickel Coke machine in the break room. Yeah. So, um, you know, I drank a six pack of Coke a shift oh, you know, for goodness. years and years. And you're still alive to talk about it. So oh, absolutely. That's, that's uh, it fueled me well, created my <laughs> digestive system. <laughs> All right, let's move, let's move along. Uh, what do you do next? So, um, or may, may, we are, we're, we're, I don't want to run us out of time. Maybe to walk me to how you got into security. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I went into IT primarily um, because it wasn't industry specific. So I worked across industries. Yeah. After Coca-Cola um, and leveraging that experience, I worked for a subsidiary Campbell Soup um, for a little while. I went to a municipal gas company. I went to a life insurance company, yeah. um, all in technology. That brings us up to the mid '90s when this thing called the internet um, caught traction, sure. and every company wanted a uh, a website to represent their company. Everybody wanted to get connected to the internet in the late 90s. And so I did the web pages for Run Up Gas Company, the first one for Shenandoah Life Insurance Company. Um, uh, and connecting to the internet brought me into the realm of security from an access control perspective mm-hmm. initially. So at the life insurance company, um, we didn't have an employee workforce of agents selling insurance. Insurance is generally sold through third-party agencies, so they're not employees, they don't have credentials into your stuff, but they need access to sell and work your policies. Mm. So in the late 90s, we created an an extranet um, for this captive agent workforce, and there was a lot of security wrapped around that from an access control perspective. They needed to see their policies, not the next agencies or not the employees. Um, uh, It was all internet-based. Pretty, it, it was pretty high-tech stuff to do in the 90s. It, it was. Um, it was the star of the annual stockholders uh, meeting that year was when we unveiled, it was called StarNet, um, this agent extra net to give them real timely, fully current information without them doing 14 phone calls over two weeks to get paperwork. You said this was the life insurance company? This was right? a life insurance company. Yeah, that's pretty neat. So um, that really made me step into security in yeah. a more meaningful way. Um, Back then, it was uh, uh, we built that platform in Lotus Notes. Uh, mm. Probably not the most popular platform these days, but back in the late '90s, it was a good oh, alternative. You do everything in Lotus Notes. Absolutely. Um, and so, once I got my foot into security there, then I was looking for a full-time role in security. Okay. Uh, at that point, I relocated to Colorado, um, entered the high-tech space. Uh, my my grand startup story. 
Um, worked up in Boulder for a couple of years um, with a startup uh, firm up there. So you came, when you came to Colorado, your first gig was working for a startup in Boulder, is that right? Um, it was, they were an established company, but they were bolting on as a startup, uh, a whole different strategic initiative, a whole okay. division that was gonna be grown from, from the ground up. Multiple data centers, we were gonna build a nationwide uh, distributed network to um, uh, reduce the cost of bandwidth. Um, it was a great concept. Um, again, this is the dot-com era, so um, while we were building it, um, things changed. Uh, like, nine, like 98, 99, 2000? Well, th this is uh, early 2000. Okay. Or so early, yeah, early 2000 so into, two th good into 2001. Yeah. So by the time we you know, moved into 2001 and we hadn't launched yet, um, the bubble burst. Yeah. Uh, we, we missed the window. It all collapsed. But I was the full-time uh, head of security engineering there. Yeah. And so when we built the team up there, we had database engineering, system engineering, network engineering, and security engineering. I had my own team of engineers. And we did build everything out. We had a, a data center in Boulder, a redundant data center in Toronto. We had the nationwide network distributed across multiple ISPs that blanketed the country. Yeah. Everything locked down, secured, monitored. We built a really nice thing that never saw a real paying customer. <laughs> How disappointing is that, though? And, and you know, that happens in this space. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of uh, CISOs I've worked with over the years since, um, you know, you spend uh, years with a lot of blood, sweat, and tears uh, investing, building things for companies that, you know, often don't even exist uh, three to five years yeah. later because they've either been deprecated, upgraded, the company's merged, or the company's gone away. Yeah. And, and that's not right or wrong. It's not good or bad. It just is. Um, we spend a lot of hours uh, and a lot of our passion um, executing things that you know have a short shelf life sometimes, or, or in this case, no shelf life. It sounds well, like. sometimes no shelf life, but you know, <laughs> yeah, um, but the rough. experience gained by everyone yeah. who built all that it launched careers. Oh, um, yeah. We did we did some some great great stuff. So uh, you were there for how long were you there before you they, you ended up getting laid off because of the downturn? Um, so I actually left one week in front of the first layoff because. Oh. Um, uh, being a, an open-minded individual, I kind of saw it coming yeah. and found the next top because I knew it was coming. Yeah. And so everyone thought I, as the head of security, had inside knowledge um, because I left one week to the day before the first layoff. Um, it was incredible timing. Um, but th that, uh, that opportunity of building all that ran um, just under two years. Okay. Um, so we built it all out, and again, uh, no revenue at that point. But sure. we, we went through... Um, you know, a couple hundred million dollars of uh, private equity funds that never saw any revenue. Uh, so what was next? So uh, after that high tech, I went into consulting, um, went to work for a consulting company. They're still around now, but in a different um, permutation here in Denver. They are um, uh, 5280 Solutions, had just spun out of Unipac back in 2001. Um, anyhow, they had a contract opportunity at the Department of Energy hmm. um, for a senior uh, security uh, analyst. So I went over to the Department of Energy for um, a year, year and a half. Um, the Department of Energy at the time had uh, uh, a cybersecurity manager as a one-man uh, functional department. Yeah. Uh, they had multiple federal uh, audits that they had never responded to, that they were required to respond to, that they couldn't get to. And so I came in to you know, do some heavy lifting and help them out. Yeah. So um, it, it's always interesting when you walk into the federal space and it's like, we need you to respond to this audit. And you crack open the cover, it's like, this audit was done 24 months ago. Yeah. Is any of this even still relevant? You want me to reply to this on a, a detailed transactional yeah. bullet point observations? Like, you deprecated this easily you know, 12 or 18 months ago, probably twice. Yeah. <laughs> but that was, that's the federal that circle. The, you, got it, you got to do a lot of paperwork. So you know, yeah. we did the paperwork. The interesting thing at the Department of Energy is I was there for those who go back that far when uh, the NIMDA worm came through. Mm. And NIMDA at the Department of Energy was a very interesting experience. Um, I had written their incident response plan for them, and that was the first time we got to actually execute it as a team. <laughs> so for those playing along at home, NIMDA is admin spelled backwards. Yep. Those of you who are sysadmins in the early 2000s will remember it very well. Absolutely. It, it was... Uh, multi-vectored uh, uh, propagating worm that uh, you know, was revolutionary for its time because of how many different ways it could propagate across your environment. Yeah. So getting your, your arms around what was actually happening and how many ways it was happening was, was an interesting exercise. Yeah. It was a 48 to 72 hour uh, C-cert case for us to, to truly uh, establish, get contained, 
and know uh, with a lot of certainty what was going on yeah. uh, because even at the time, you know, the, the AV vendors and the malware vendors were, were struggling to figure that out themselves. So in real time, you didn't have a lot to pull from from the community. Yeah. But uh, a little easier these days. So there's a lot more analysis uh, com uh, that comes a lot faster. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a whole lot more threats now too. Though. Absolutely. Yeah. So after the Department of Energy, um, I became the CISO for financial services firm in Golden. Hmm. Um, at the time, uh, I joined them. They were called ProCard, but uh, ProCard was a small shop that had been acquired by a large card player out of Georgia called uh, Total Systems, hmm. um, usually referred to as TSIS. Uh, TSIS did eventually rebrand us as uh, TSIS I Solutions and combined us with several other subsidiaries. Um, TSIS was a global firm um, that did uh, business in a lot of different countries. But they also, the, uh, the claim to fame I share with people when I talk about the days at TSIS is TSIS ran verified by Visa. So everyone understood that when they took their Visa card in um, and the transaction had to come back approved, that was running on a pair of uh, uh, mainframes at a data center that I'd walked through in uh, southern Georgia at, at Total Systems. Uh, blacked out data center rooms, high security. Mm. You're talking millions of dollars a second flowed through those mainframes. Wow. And any downtime was millions of dollars yeah. and millions of dollars. I bet. So um, was a great time. This is, um, uh, I was the CISO during the time that uh, Visa was pushing their uh, KISP program, Cardholder Information Security Program. Yeah. MasterCard had their SDP program, American Express had their own, Discover had their own. Everyone today would recognize those card associations came together and created PCI. Mm -hmm. So this was the, the uh, pre-days of PCI uh, before they all came together. They were all doing their own. Right. Um, Visa was probably pushing it the hardest. And it was an interesting time as a small back-end credit card transaction processor because um, Visa wasn't a regulatory authority. They couldn't impose this on you. Mm -hmm. Their power was contractual. Right. And so when they first started to propagate the card program, they did what you and I would do in our companies today. They did a risk assessment. And based on that risk assessment, they said, we should place this on the card processors first because they have more data than most people. Yeah. And so they came unto us and said, you will comply. And we said, why will we comply? <laughs> so because if you don't, we're going to pull your authorization to process card transactions that bear the logo Visa. It's like you're flirting with anti-competitive behavior. So this morphed very quickly from a technology discussion into a business discussion. Mm. Um, after the paperwork came across my desk as, as the CISO, I went straight to the head of BizDev and the general counsel who was negotiating the contract with Visa and said, do not ignore this provision. This is a business problem. This is not an IT problem. Mm. They didn't understand at the time, the day I made that statement. But let me tell you, that, that addendum to their business contract, because we were a partner with Visa too, that's right. what the contract was about, it held up executing this contract for 18 months. Mm. Because once they finally understood what it was and what it was going to cost us to go to a compliant posture, yeah. it was a real problem. So I ended up in the CEO's office one day and he said, David, just in simple language, tell me why they're doing this. Yeah. And I said, Mr. CEO, I'll leave his name out, but Mr. CEO, um, it's actually very simple. I said, do you know what the annual number dollar loss is for credit card fraud in the United States today. And he said, you know, I, I don't know that off the top of my head, um, but I'm guessing you do. I said, it just hit $50 billion. Hmm. This is like 2002 or three, um, making me think back. And he said, you just crystallized it for hmm. me. I said, exactly. I said, all they're trying to do, I said, today, when there's card fraud, the issuing bank has to eat it. Mm. All they're trying to do is share the pain. The dollar cost has gotten too high in card fraud. They want to make different parties in the total chain of processing card transactions accountable for that. So if we have a card breach and we lose, you know, thousands to millions of different cards and um, fraudulent transactions are executed against them, they want someone to pay for some right. of that. So that's all it's about. And he's like, I got it. Mm. <laughs> We did eventually go there. Um, yeah. um, we did eventually get certified, um, uh, KISP at the time, pre-PCI. And um, shortly around that time frame, I ended up moving on 
as uh, Tesis kind of shifted strategies and started to assimilate some of the subsidiaries more into their core. And I was invited to relocate to Georgia and had no interest in that, so mm -hmm. I moved on. Okay. Uh, walk us forward. I know you went to another, it looks like healthcare next, is that right? Yes, um, and we're almost to the end of my resume, I promise. Um, so after financial services, I, I was the CISO there for five years. Um, I went uh, briefly as an independent consultant. Yeah and some executives I had worked for in that financial services company had gone into healthcare up in the Twin Cities, needed to build a security program, which I'd done several places, and uh, called me and said, uh, we understand you're, you're leaving, do you have some time to help us out? I said, sure. So I did a two-year contract, um, uh, ultimately, as an independent for them, built their security program out, hired a security manager for them um, up in Minnesota in the Twin Cities, and. Um, then a, uh, I'll call them a, a, a larger, more experienced healthcare player came in and wanted to buy the company that I was uh, contracting for and make them the cornerstone of a large growing healthcare conglomerate. Mm -hmm. uh, they were going to grow rapidly through M&A. The company I was contracting for was primarily a, um, uh, a TPA operation, a third-party administration firm mm -hmm. for um, uh, long-term care insurance policies for, for many of those providers, the MetLife's, the Northwestern Mutuals of the world. So anyhow, um, we became uh, Univita Health. Um, we started buying other companies. At that point, um, I hired on as the Vice President of Risk Management and ended up running the compliance, risk management, internal audit, and security functions, uh, independent of IT, and uh, ultimately reporting to general counsel. So. Um, we had a plethora of regulatory issues to deal with, compliance issues to deal with. Um, much like PCI is to security, um, URAC accreditation in healthcare is a big deal if you're operating hospitals and or health services in the home. We had acquired a home healthcare company. We had acquired a durable medical equipment company. Um, we had had some legal issues op uh, arise out of uh, those operations. Um, I had an interesting time. I walked into the COO's office one time right after those acquisitions, and I said, uh, Mr. COO, um, you know, before this acquisition, our biggest risk, whatever could go wrong, you could solve by writing a simple check because it was all just financial. It was insurance coverage. Yeah. I said, now that you've bought this, have you thought about the fact that your biggest risk is direct cause of death? Mm. And he looked at me and he said, I haven't gone there yet. Why would you say that? Yeah. I said, well, that um, home health company you bought runs a specialty infusion pharmacy. They mix custom narcotics of the prescription flavor, and they do custom blends of them. Mm. And then you pay contracted nurses to walk into someone's home and inject them into people's bodies. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> said, there's a liability there. Yeah. Um, do we need to talk with external counsel? At the time, we didn't have an internal counsel. Yeah. Um, shortly thereafter, we hired an internal counsel <laughs> uh, because they recognized in some, some discussion we had some challenges there. Yeah. And in truth, um, we also had bought a durable medical equipment company. Within three to six months, within three months, uh, I had a Medicaid fraud issue that I was investigating with an external counsel in that operation in South Florida. And within six months, we had our first wrongful death suit for mm. a death out of the uh, durable medical equipment company based on equipment we had provided. Um, so it, it proved me uh, yeah. prophetic. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. not the time you want to be right, though, right? Right. So that's healthcare. After healthcare, I uh, came back to Denver. Um, I consulted uh, briefly, but then the opportunity at QEP Resources and oil and gas opened up. Um, I had worked for five years for a municipal gas company in the 90s. I had spent a year to two years at the Department of Energy in Lakewood um, uh, as a senior security resource, as a consultant. And so um, it was uh, you know, a reasonable fit. I knew a little bit more about the space than some. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I'm really interested in hearing about Blue Lake Protection Services. What's that? Uh, so Blue Lake Protection Services was a startup venture okay. um, that I did just prior to QEP. Um, so I had um, uh, connections, a uh, couple of connections, a prior CIO I worked with and a prior CEO that I had worked with who was running a uh, data aggregation company 
uh, mm -hmm. building platforms off of you know what we you know call business intelligence or uh, artificial intelligence today. Um, he was doing. He was an ex uh, C level executive of Choice Point from back in the '90s, mm. and he had built a company um, uh, here in Colorado uh, and partnered with Entrado up in Longmont to provide um, some specialized applications for law enforcement. Mm. Um, I was on his advisory board for a number of years, and we had talked about the difficulties of working in the law enforcement market. Um, um, my, I have an older brother who was a, a career cop on the East Coast, and there are some unique attributes to uh, you know, trying to sell software into police departments. And, mm, and, I bet. And, 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 uh, anyhow, he had had some reasonable luck, but it, it had um, definitely gone way slower than his business plan. Anyhow, I connected him um, uh, with my uh, other friend, former CIO, uh, who was also an independent consultant at the time. And I said, you know what? I said, um, I have an interesting idea for a privacy solution. And this is, you know, a few years ago, uh, three or four years ago, um, that, you know, you can bring the data to, because he had contracts with all the data aggregators. Yeah. Said, you and I can bring the software and security expertise into the platform to create a consumer-targeted privacy platform because so much of what has happened since we foresaw with the privacy violations, with the protection stuff coming out of the EU, um, we, we saw a business opportunity. And we actually spent a year going after it. Um, we, we did land a contract with LexisNexis on the uh, hmm. data side. Um, we had had conversations with several of the other credit bureaus uh, on the data side. Um, we had piloted and, prevent, and presented to investors, many investors, uh, mock-ups of what we had in mind uh, conceptually for this solution. We got a lot of traction um, at that level. At the end of the day, 12 months in, we just couldn't pull the funding at a mm. reasonable cost. And so we went separate ways. Uh, we decided to throw in the towel. Mm. Um, uh, CIO was, was relocating back to Texas. Um, we had a different spin um, uh, on the data aggregation company, and I was left going, "All right, I haven't had any income for you know a year to two years now. Um, might be eh, nice to have a job. Might, 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 might be time to go back um, yeah. and get a job and, and, and re-level re, re set the bank account." So um, that's when I found QEP. Yeah. So, so when uh, it's gonna be some background on for those who don't know QEP, where do they put fit in the market? Yeah, so QEP Resources is uh, primarily an upstream oil and gas company. Um, in oil and gas, it's upstream, midstream, and downstream. Yeah. Uh, upstream are the ones who drill and pull it out of the ground. Yep. Midstream are the transport, they're the pipelines. And then downstream is refining or turning it into the, the next products. That's yeah. where you actually take oil, turn it into gasoline. Uh, simple version. And so QEP, when I hired on um, in the middle of 2015, um, had just inked a deal. They were an upstream and midstream company. They had just inked a deal to sell their midstream assets um, to a company called Tesoro, a, a larger uh, oil company. And um, it worked out really well for them, uh, timing-wise, to have inked that deal and sold the midstream because um, in 2016, the price of oil collapsed, <laughs> which is a reality in a commodity market, which right. is oil and gas. Um, we had the money to weather that collapse just fine because we had the proceeds from the recently sold midstream. Mm. It actually ran a number of the other smaller players here in Denver out of business. Mm. Uh, it forces consolidation when you see that big a drop in the price of oil for a sustained period of time. Yeah. So today, QEP is um, uh, you know, primarily an, an upstream oil and gas company. Um, today, we're located in basin areas from North Dakota, Utah, Louisiana, and Texas. Um, we are actually making a strategic shift to become uh, primarily focused in the Texas Permian Basin area. Um, and the whole mission is drill and pull oil out of the ground and put it on the market. Yeah. So what are, what are some unique challenges that you have running security at oil and gas? You, you just went through all kinds of other industries that you've worked in. Yep. What's, what's different about oil and gas? So oil and gas is very different in, in the respect that it's an unregulated business from an IT security perspective. Mm -hmm. There is no PCI, there is no HIPAA high tech. There's no uh, mandate or regulatory body that says thou shalt uh, protect certain classes of data in any way, shape, or form. Mm. 
So that's thing one, and it's the reason most oil and gas companies that are you know, just um, uh, SMB-sized businesses, um, if they have a dedicated security function, it's usually a manager of security that reports to a director of IT. Right. Um, QEP is um, not huge, but a little larger than some players in Denver. Um, so when I joined them, I think our market cap was about $4 billion. We were about a $4 billion company. Um, before the collapse of oil price, and it's amazing. I mean, you can cut your market cap in half just with mm. the shift of oil and, and in the day-to-day. -day. Um, that's okay. It's not uh, a crisis or anything. You still operate the same way every day, pour oil out of the ground, and then sell it. But um, I, I went to QEP with the understanding that they took security more seriously than average in the industry. Mm -hmm. And they proved that to me. A, the CIO that I work for um, demonstrated a clear knowledge, had gotten his own CISSP. Mm. Um, he got it. Um, we were going to be going on a monthly basis to the senior executives, uh, we call it the IT Steering Committee, um, in formal governance fashion, and we would go to the board meetings and status them on security. Mm. Um, we had several board members at the time, some have moved on, we've replaced them over the years, but. Um, who were very security-minded mm -hmm. out of other energy companies that had had security um, events. Yeah. And so in any industry, when you're talking the C-suites and the board of directors, how much importance the uh, information security function gets is usually a direct outgrowth of their personal professional experience. You do have regulatory drivers and mandates for compliance, and depending on the industry for financial services, healthcare, and others, but um, predominantly, the guys calling the shots in the day-to-day, -day, if they've suffered events, they get it. If they've worked legal cases, they get it. If they've had to engage law enforcement, they definitely get it. Hmm. Um, having done all of that in my background, um, I got here. They had, they had never had major issues um, at QEP, but they got it. Hmm. And so they walk the talk. Um, I'm now the director of, of, of IT security there, have yeah. been for, for most of my tenure there. So they, they brought it up a notch compared to many of my peers here in downtown. So would well. it be fair to say that when you walked in, the previous r owner of the security program was a terrible person and a terrible security professional? <laughs> you know, I would not make that judgment. <laughs> I, I, so you're saying I can quote you that Alex Wood did a terrible job running the security program at QEP. Alex Wood did a, uh, an admirable job establishing what he established at the time he established it, <laughs> so, yeah. given the lack of backing he had at the time. So the, uh, uh, the subtext here, obviously, Alex, the co-host of the show, is, was the, the guy running security there um, before you. And yep. Alex ran, runs security at Pulte, where I was previously. Yep. And Small so world, he has it? the opportunity to give me all kinds of grief. Um, so a little <laughs> bit of payback here seems fair. Uh, so, you know, one of the things we hear a lot about is um, nation states who are, are looking to, you know, get footholds in critical infrastructure. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think you guys probably are critical infrastructure, maybe peripherally, because you're yeah. not actually, uh, it's a little different than being like a, it is. a, a generation uh, in an electrical plant. But uh, do you see any of this uh, in day-to-day -day activities for you? Is it something you think about much? Um, not at QEP. Mm -hmm. So, um, interestingly, um, I spent five years on the board of directors of the local Denver InfraGuard chapter, yeah. um, all about critical infrastructure and public-private partnership. Um, yeah. I was the president in, in 09-010 of the Denver chapter. Um, while technically on paper, any oil and gas company meets the definition of critical infrastructure, if you're an upstream provider, basically just pulling it out of the ground and putting it into a third-party pipeline, mm -hmm. We really have nothing that can take down anything of consequence. Hmm. So it's just a matter of volume of supply. You might at stop that point. producing gas, right? right? That's about it's, it. It's just volume of supply. That's it. Yeah. So hypothetically, if um, evil um, international hackers um, penetrated our uh, SCADA ICS systems and shut down our wells or our drilling operations, and we had to take it all offline nobody in the United States would even be aware or see a blip in, right. in oil supply or energy supply. Yeah. So it, it makes it much less likely at our size as a, a shale drilling uh, upstream provider that, that we're a target yeah. of, of those firms, nor have I seen it in, in the monitoring that we do. Yeah. Um, now, in fact, um, I am aware of 
um, some cyber, non-public cyber events in the oil and gas space that were a little more impactful, involved law enforcement, uh, things had to, to be very formally investigated and done. Um, even those, they can stay unpublic because they had no real impact in the day-to-day. So uh, in my time at the DOE, um, for those who remember, I think it was um, uh, probably 2002-ish, uh, we had a big blackout in the northeastern United oh, yeah, States. Big one. Ohio, yeah. Yeah, yeah, huge event. Well, I was at the DOE uh, HQ here in Lakewood the day that went down, and CIO came up looking for the cybersecurity manager who... Um, uh, just poking fun as a fed uh, had taken the day off <laughs> and so uh, yeah, I was the only one there and she's like come with me we got to talk yeah and um, we were all of course watching the news about the blackout and so she takes me back privately to her office and she says um, look she said you did one of the uh, technical assessments at one of our state ops centers in South Dakota and I did she's like so given what's going on tell me we're okay I said what like, tell me we're okay. I can't tell you that. I don't yeah. have enough information to make that determination yeah. or conclusion. She's like, I need to know that we're okay. I was like, you know, um, I, I, I'm a contractor and a consultant. Yeah. I'm not a Fed. I, I, I have to tell you the truth. Right. <laughs> um, she's like, okay, fine. Uh, when he gets back, send him my way. <laughs> Somebody else can tell um, me we're okay. But it, it, was, it was just a knee-jerk reaction within the Department of Energy. They didn't know how far that was going to cascade. Right. They didn't know if it could cross. The United States is in four separate regional blocks yeah. of power administrations, four different chunks, four or five different chunks that run the total grid for the country, um, Western Area uh, Power Administration being one of them. And they didn't know if it could cross, if it was going to keep coming. They didn't know what the cause was. Right. Um, they didn't know if it was a cyber event. Uh, at the end of the day, we all know now it was not a cyber event. Well, there's a lot of speculation initially that it was. Yeah. Oh, I have a huge, huge yeah. speculation that it was initially. Now, the reason for that speculation and the nervousness within the DOE at the time was because most of the power administrations had finally conceded the economics and shifted some of the SCADA ICS stuff over to TCP IP. Oh, yeah. They had connected them to corporate networks. Yeah. They had the air gap. TCP was going I, away, the yeah. air gap was gone. They had they had enabled them with with IP, and they knew they now had some exposure to cyber right. attack, and that's why they were so edgy back then yeah. at the time. So, so we are just about out of time, David. I know we, you have a hard stop. You got to get back yep. to work. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the infra, InfraGuard work mm-hmm. you've done. Um, so, mm-hmm. if I signed up for InfraGuard seven years ago, is my membership still good? Absolutely. So I'm in. I'm still there. I haven't <laughs> been to something for a long time. Uh, you know, it is one of the you know less accessible of the groups in town because you do True. have to go through a background check process and Correct. all that. Um, so, the, but those who are interested in getting involved, what what do they get out of it? So, InfraGuard, you know, we, we had in town, of course, ISSA uh, was was very prevalent, and I was a member of ISSA back then, um, and you know, a couple others. When InfraGuard first launched again, early 2000s uh, here in Denver, um, the FBI wasn't doing a very good job of driving this um, public-private partnership initiative. Yeah. Um, and they basically made the mistake of distributing it to all the field offices who didn't have a lot of skin in the game or, or need to do that versus work real cases until they mandated that they formally assign a coordinator in, in, in each of the uh, chapter cities. But even then, they didn't give it a lot of mind share, mm-hmm. except in the chapters where, just by virtue of the local community, there was a lot of engagement and passion. Yeah. So um, Denver, at the time I was um, on the board, again, five years on the board from 2005 to, tw- to 2010, we became the second largest chapter in the country, mm. right behind New York. And we had... Um, regularly we were having you know 100 to 150 people at the quarterly meetings now the big complaint at the time was you only meet quarterly and you know if i can't if i have a schedule conflict right. and can't meet i've gone half a year it's kind of hard to stay engaged yeah it is so you know back then we launched the uh, sector chief program uh, for each of the critical infrastructure sectors and tried to you know form smaller committees to give people that wanted to get more involved on a more regular basis and ability to do so specifically within their industry Mm -hmm. niche. Um, What we got out of it at the time, and many people told me um, after certain chapter meetings, was 
real case examples. Hmm. So the, the CISO challenge um, in the late 2000s was hypothetically where you have these vulnerabilities and bad things could happen, but if they haven't happened here, I can't get any backing yeah. from senior management or business leadership. Yeah. Um, so what you needed, even if it wasn't in your company, you needed real case examples yep. that bad things had happened. And the FBI would share um, you know, non-classified cases of real things they had seen right here in Denver mm. that actually touched many companies in the room who were completely unaware of it at the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and that to me was the real value prop that mm. InfraGuard brought um, that was different from ISSA and ISACA yeah. and the others. Yeah. So um, it was a little bit of a law enforcement slant. Um, unfortunately, you always had people who thought, hey, it's the FBI InfraGuard, I get a badge, right? It's like, no. <laughs> no, we are not empowering you to do anything right. <laughs> other than to file a SAR and cooperate with us yeah. and learn. <laughs> well, we are we are over our allotted time, David. I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Um, looking forward to connecting with you again in the future, and hopefully we can get other folks to come see you at some of these events in town. Sure, absolutely. Are you still going to InfraGuard events? Um, I haven't been myself in a while. Yeah. Um, typically, when you step down from the board after such a long tenure, you're trying to turn it over to new folks, and you try yeah. to avoid it. Um, for a while, but it, uh, enough time has passed. I, I, I've been looking forward to getting yeah. back. Cool. All right. Well, thanks again for your time. We'll talk to you soon. Nope. Thank you. Enjoyed right. it. Bye -bye. Until next time. Learn more about the Colorado security scene at colorado-security.com, where you can see information about local security groups, a calendar of upcoming security events, and learn more about Colorado equals security. Reach out to Alex and Rob by emailing info at colorado-security.com. Until next time, remember, Colorado equals security.